Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. You've seen these guys at all the horror shows and comic cons. Now you can get your very own inked up merch, the finest in embroidered horror and sci-fi themed merchandise. From Lost Boys to Street Trash, from Chopping Mall to Cobra Kai, Inked Up has the best in embroidered beanies, baseball caps, and patches. Now they've even got their own Jaws-inspired Amity Island board shorts. You gotta take a look, these things are cool. Visit their Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash inked up merch. Are you looking to get your own printed or embroidered merch? Inked Up has been in business for over 10 years. Whether you're looking for merch for your band or you need crew logo shirts and hats for your first film production, you need some sick looking perks for your Kickstarter project, Inked Up can accommodate your needs with their custom silkscreen printing and embroidery services. Visit inkedupmerch.com and tell them Jerry sent you. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. Say my name, say my name, it's my brother Candyman coming to kill your ass. That's right, this week we're talking all about one of my favorite horror classics, Candyman, the 1992 cult classic starring Tony Todd. You know what time it is. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Offering. My name is Jerry Hara. So happy to have you here. It's your time. It's our time. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? It's good to see you. Let's do a little AS. <laughs> I was going to say ASMR, but let's not do that. It's kind of creepy. Hey, how's everybody doing tonight? I hope you're having a So I got our first review for the show. It's pretty dope. Pretty excited. It's five stars. And, and that's what I expect. I expect them five star reviews because I expect nothing less because I know I got the best listeners in the world. I, I, I don't even like I'm not at the point where I have fans. Like, Joe Rogan got fans. Uh, Mark Marin got fans. It's like a fucking cult for those dudes. But for me, this, this is new. This is all exciting. So you're here. So let's talk about it. Five stars from Captain McKay. Going to read his review. Excellent show! Exclamation point. He's putting it right out there. He, know, he knows it's dope. He knows it's dope. I've listened to every episode so far. Been thoroughly enjoying the dives into movies and music genres, the lore of different franchises, and Jerry's personal anecdotes sprinkled throughout. It's a digestible, entertaining show that I look forward to every week. I'd love to hear a show about the Elm Street franchise at some point. Stay tuned. Or even Arnold Schwarzenegger retrospective. Also stay tuned. I'm on board for any future offerings. Man, Captain McCabe, thank you so much. That is so kind. This is so monumental right now. It's so big because people all the time, it's so easy to say negative things. We live in a world where people are moths to the flame about negativity. But when you get something like this and it's just like, it, it's so genuine and heartfelt that somebody actually took the time out of their day to write a review. Um, this is why I implore you, write a review for the show. Go on, go, this is from iTunes. Go on iTunes, go write a review. I don't know. We're on Spotify. We're on, we're on everything. Seriously. You could listen to this podcast in the back of a Yoohoo bottle. It's, it's everywhere. It's literally everywhere. Um, I don't know how you do reviews on Spotify. Get at me on Twitter. Be like, Jerry, this is how we do reviews on Spotify. I, I don't know. You know, there's, there's a lot of competition out there. It's getting mad thick. You know what I'm saying? People signing crazy deals. Uh, like my man, uh, DJ Academics just signed a crazy deal with Spotify. You know? Put out a pilot with uh, Takashi 69 and WAC 100. And hey, it, like it is what it is, but that basically sold the show to Spotify. They put it out as a pilot and they were like, hey, we're definitely going to fuck with this. And they picked them up. So if you have any controversial rappers or gang members that you know that want to be on the show, please, you know, hit me up on social media or at the bodega, which I will be there. Be there with <laughs> Desus and Mero at, at the bodega. 
Um, those guys really fell into a, a pile of money. God damn. They, they basically took everything that they grew up with and uh, they turned it into the marketing premise for their entire show. And I think that's kind of cool. So it's about that time where it's almost the end of the summer. Oh, boy. Sad times, especially if you want to have kids that got to go back to school. Well, fuck you, because that's one good thing about being an adult. You don't have to go back to school. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm like super thankful because school is look, man, learning is a beautiful thing. But school can be pretty terrible. Seriously, growing up is is not easy. Um, generally, I've always looked forward to a lot of the movies in August. You get a lot of weird movies that are just kind of like, shit, I didn't see that coming. Like Blade, one of my favorite movies, came out in August. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, another one of my favorite movies, came out in August. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, another one of my favorite movies, came out in August. So I think you get those curveball movies that they don't expect to perform. We've got some interesting stuff. Like we just got the Suicide Squad. It's dope. You should watch it. I loved it. James Gunn, he's an all-star. We love him. God bless. Um, we're also getting Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds that I'm hearing is pretty good. And I'm kind of excited. Kind of want to check that out. Uh, but you know there's only one big horror movie coming out. Uh, in August, and it is the Nia DaCosta version of Candyman dropping August 27th in theaters everywhere. I'm very excited for this movie. I'm a fan of her work. Uh, I dig all the actors that are in the movie. Looks pretty interesting. It's one of those times where it's like, you know, it's a property that I love, but at the same time, you have some really interesting creators and actors involved. So I'm kind of I would say I'm cautiously optimistic, but I'm more optimistic with this one because it does look like a lot of fun. Um, There seems to be a very artful approach, and I think that that's something that's very important to Candyman based on the original film, which is what we're talking about today, ladies and gentlemen. What a coincidence. (laughs) We're going to be talking all about Candyman today, the 1992 film. It is a, it's a tough film to get through. It's pretty intense, but I love it. I think it's one of those movies that is right up there with A Nightmare on Elm Street um, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think that you guys will really enjoy this episode. You're going to learn a lot today because I got into the history of this film, man, and it's crazy. Like, it's absolutely crazy. So uh, it's time for you to kick your shoes off take your bra off if you got a bra if you don't have a bra maybe maybe borrow one you know maybe you need a bra maybe you don't i don't know let them titties hang i don't care make yourself a drink open a bottle of wine roll the joint or or you know what i'm always talking about people like chilling maybe you're driving to work keep your eyes on the road or if you're on the subway hey look man there might be some dude trying to rob you look to your left look to your right you see what i'm saying so it's like I don't know what you're doing, but I'm trying to get you there. So let's go to the Cabrini Green Projects and go visit my good friend, Candyman. It's incredible to think that we went through the entire decade of the 80s where we saw the rise to prominence of horror icons such as Freddy Krueger and uh, some of our good pals like Jason Voorhees. And we didn't get a black horror icon until 1992. Obviously, I'm talking about Tony Todd as Candyman, the subject of this very show. But it's crazy. Like, you couldn't get a brother to be a horror icon. Like, it took the entire 80s. But it's almost kind of properly fitting because of what was going on in cinema at that time. In 1991, we got uh, one of the most defining moments in film history, which I think was Boys in the Hood from John Singleton. And I think that was a real shift in the marketplace and also showing that people were going to show up and they wanted to see movies about black people with black people in them. And that's kind of exciting to me, at least. And, you know, growing up at this time was was it was very formative for me. You know, I'm watching a lot of movies. Um, You're starting to make those decisions, you know, being in junior high, going into high school and what movies you're going to watch. What are cool movies to see with your friends? You know, 
you're becoming a little consumer. You're making decisions with your money. You're saying, hey, I'm going to spend my money on this. I'm going to spend my money on that. And I got to tell you, I saw Candyman in 1992, and it freaked me out. Like, it legitimately was one of those movies that every time I turned off a light in the room or somewhere, I looked down the hallway, and I was like, God damn, I hope Candyman isn't here. Like, I was, like, legitimately scared. And I can't say that about a lot of movies. Um, I, I think because Candyman falls into this very bizarre headspace of urban legends. And there's something more tangible and something more real and unknown and forbidden about urban legends. Because you hear about them from friends. You know, you hear about them from cousins, from older brothers and sisters. And they tell you, they're like, hey, did you hear that story? And Candyman very much fits into that zeitgeist of urban legends. Have you ever heard of Candyman? If you look in the mirror, you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Where did that? It ain't safe around here. That don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? is about to discover. Helen? Get out! Get out! What's behind the mystery? I'm sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all, come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. are some things about this story that fit into reality, but weren't really connected. There's another case that happened in Chicago. Uh, it's about a guy who was murdering some people. He was called the Candyman because he worked at a candy factory, but there really wasn't enough of a connection for me to talk about it on this episode. It's kind of like grasping at straws because, yes, it's got the same name. In no way does it bear any resemblance to the film itself or the story. But I always like to do this, especially when we go back in time, is we take a snapshot into what was going on in horror in 1992. And the landscape was, it had its good things, but it had some of its bad things. One of the movies that I loved that year was Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it's a beautiful film, still holds up, I absolutely love it. Um, it's a, it's a great film. Probably also has one of the greatest scores of that decade. Go and listen to the Dracula score. It's phenomenal. Gary Oldman. The whole thing. It's a great film. Great film. Sleepwalkers. Eh, you know, I get it. Not really my cup of tea. Like, I'm sorry. I know there's people out there that I can't talk bad about Stephen King, but I just I wasn't too crazy about the adaptation. You know, I saw that in theaters. Uh, Hellraiser 3. Hell on Earth. Uh, that was basically where they wanted to take the Hellraiser franchise and turn it into something like a Freddy Krueger, you know, something that was more tangible to the public and to the box office. Kind of did or didn't work. You got Lawnmower Man. We're talking about VR because it's the early 90s and Jesus Christ, everybody's got to talk about virtual reality. Um, the director's cut is much better of Lawnmower Man. So if you want to check that out, I, I, if you've got the option... If you got look, if you've got the option, get the Scream Factory Blu-ray, and the director's cut is on there. That's the one you should be watching. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
not the TV show, but the OG classic with uh, the dearly departed uh, Luke Perry. I enjoy me some Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's good campy fun. Uh, Army of Darkness. Ooh, everybody loves Army of Darkness. That's a good one. Alien 3. Mm, mm, mm. You know what? The less we talk about it, the better. Uh, Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. That was an interesting movie. Not as good as the series, but whatever. Dr. Giggles, another attempt to create a new slasher villain by Universal Pictures that kind of didn't work. I still dug it. I enjoyed it. I had the poster on my wall. I was a horror nerd growing up in the 90s, so of course I did. Pet Cemetery 2. Listen, people say what you will. I really enjoy Pet Cemetery 2. It's a good movie. It Well, okay, it's not a good movie, but goddamn, is it entertaining. You got Clancy Brown as the bad guy. Uh, you got Edward Furlong. Hot off of Terminator 2. It's a weird movie. It's out there, but it's gory. It's got a good soundtrack, and it's pretty well unforgiving. Like, it's just a nasty little piece of business. You definitely check it out if you can. Ooh. See, now, this is this is one that I enjoyed. Uh, Innocent Blood, which is kind of a mob movie mixed with a vampire movie. Shot in New York. Uh, ooh, God. Ooh, Jesus. Children of the Corn to the final sacrifice because yeah at that point Miramax was going to do whatever they could to keep that franchise rolling through Dimension Home Video uh oh Jesus Christ there's some really bad films here Critters 4 because nobody you look man I love Critters I absolutely love Critters in some ways I'll tell you Critters is just as good as Gremlins Critters is basically we've got Gremlins at home that's basically what (laughs) kind of what Critters is uh, demonic toys. I enjoy demonic toys cause that's, that's how I get down, but it's not a very good film. You know, it's, it's kind of that period of time with full moon films where Charles band was just like, Hey, I can make, I can make these movies and make them profitable and put out like one every month on home video. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what full moon did at that point. Look, demonic toys is fine. All right. It's okay. And it's, it's, you know, it's like I always say, it's, it's okay. If you like a movie, that's fine. Like, don't feel bad. You know, there's no reason to feel guilty. People always talk about guilty pleasures. Go, oh my God, I feel so bad that I love this movie. But no, I don't feel bad. It's okay. Um, we've kind of come to this point in history, like, it was a bigger deal in 1992. It was a bigger deal. When you had to choose a movie and go see it in the movie theater, it's always a big deal. But it was also a big deal to go rent a movie. So you would go and it's like if you were in your family or you were with your friend, your friend group, especially as a young person, like you get to pick the movie. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. A lot of responsibility as well. And people are like, hey, it's all on you. If we don't like this movie, you know, like you picked it. Let me tell you something. When I was a kid, yeah, I, I picked Leprechaun too. And I lost my privileges for a little while <laughs> to pick movies. We, I was not allowed to pick a film for a while. And, and Leprechaun 2 was pretty terrible. Was it the worst thing I had ever seen? No. But if you have a peer group that isn't used to bad horror movies, it probably is the worst thing that they've ever seen. So I was completely ostracized for that pick. Uh, love it, hate it, or whatever. So, here we are. 1992. And this is kind of a really weird story of where this film came from, because you would think like, hey, wait a second. It's it's a movie that takes place um, in the black community, in the projects in Chicago. This was something that was probably birthed by black folk. Wrong. It's not. It came from a very white, very gay British author named Clive Barker and Clive Barker had had so much success with the Hellraiser uh, film and whatnot, he kind of lost control of those films. And it was the same thing with Nightbreed. He, you know, he made that movie and the studio took it. They cut it to shreds. So he had had a difficult relationship early on with Hollywood. I I don't think he's ever completely recovered, to, to be perfectly honest with you. And it was also one of those things where, you know, you're this premier horror author, And then you have these books and then the adaptations just aren't that good or they don't really resemble what your vision is. And that's kind of a problem. That's that's got to be tough to go through. He had uh, something called Books of Blood and Books of Blood 
was essentially a collection of short stories. And uh, Candyman, well, as it was known originally, was called The Forbidden. And uh, The Forbidden is a, is a very strange story because it takes place in England. It's with a bunch of white people, and it's totally different. Like, in a lot of ways, it's a completely different short story. Believe it or not, it was set in Liverpool, the book The Forbidden, the short story. And <laughs> most notably, uh, for fans who grew up like me, who grew up reading Clive Barker, it's the short story where a child gets their pee-pee cut off. Yeah, it's, it's pretty messed up. It uh, definitely sticks with you. So it's 1990. They're over in England. Clive Barker, they're making Nightbreed. And he runs into Bernard Rose, who's a director-writer, the director-writer of Candyman. And Rose says to Clive Barker, he's like, man, he's like, The Forbidden is like my favorite story in that book. He's like, did you ever think about adapting it? And Clive Barker was like going through the madness that was Nightbreed. And he says, no, because it's, it's, it's a tough one to adapt into a screenplay. Like, I don't know, even know where I would start to make it a full length picture. So Bernard Rose basically says, listen, can I have your blessing to pick it up and try and sell it as a film, as a feature? So... He goes and uh, goes to TriStar Pictures, and they're like, yeah, that's great. They're like, do you have a screenwriter on the project? He's like, no, we don't. So at this point, Bernard Rose was pretty well dead broke. He was not doing very well. He basically had just missed his car payment and was about two months behind on rent. So he told TriStar, you know what? I'll write I'll write the screenplay because what they were going to do was they were going to give whoever wrote the screenplay an upfront cash advance. And he was like, okay, well, I'm in a situation where I need money. The only caveat being here was that Rose had never written a screenplay. So he was going to learn very quickly how to do it in order to pay his bills. He wrote it in less than a month and basically, for better or worse, the studio loved it. They said, hey, this is a really good screenplay. We're, we're, we're down. TriStar is all in. Shows the screenplay to Clive Barker. He says, this works, man. This is really good. This is a different, different kind of movie. It's different from the short story, The Forbidden. This has got its own flavor, its own unique take. And part of that unique take was, this movie is about black folk. And it's all about these people that are living within the Cabrini Green Projects in Chicago which is a far, far distant call from a bunch of white folks and crazy stuff that was going on in Liverpool. The movie turns into much more, and the screenplay starts to take on a life of its own. And it start, this, is where, this is the first part where it gets crazy, and this is the first real big fun fact. So TriStar was like, okay, we're going to do this. We only have one caveat. We want the lead female role to be played by Sandra Bullock. And Sandra Bullock was like, you know, she was still, her career was still trying to take off and she was interested in doing a horror film. And the producers were like, hey, she, you know, at that point she had just done Speed and they're like, this is going to be a good look for her, something she wants to do. It's going to be a project that's built around her. Ultimately, she goes to do Demolition Man. That doesn't work out. I mean, hey, look, I love Demolition Man, but the producers were pretty much... Uh, Hey, look, you know, we, we, we need a, a name attached. Um, Bernard Rose had nobody else in mind but Virginia Madsen, and he fought. He basically fought tooth and nail. He's like, look, I, I have to get her on this picture. You know, no matter whatever I do, um, she's the person that I want to play this role. So they eventually conceded. I think ultimately what happened, too, was, was that... Sandra Bullock would have been A, too expensive, ultimately. And I think that there were parts of the movie that TriStar was still not quite comfortable with. And they probably would have had to make some significant changes to get Bullock on board. So to be perfectly honest with you, this is one of those situations where, you know, you say to yourself, would it have been a better movie? No, probably not. They, they most likely would have neutered it in order to fit whatever Bullock's people were trying to sell at that time. 
this is this is the craziest part though. In the original screenplay, the only way that you could contact Candyman was to say his name 13 times. Now, that's fucking ridiculous and it wouldn't work. But they didn't know it wouldn't work because if you just read it, if you read it on the page like, "Oh, you say his name 13 times." Okay, I get it. But once they did the, the first table read of the screenplay, Virginia Madsen, who had gotten cast at that point, she's sitting there and she's like, Candyman, 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 Candyman. You know, she goes on 13 times and it's like, oh, this is not good. So they basically came to the conclusion, like, what about three times? So like, oh, it's kind of like Beetlejuice. You can't do that. So like five times, like, okay. So I feel like if one decision was made early on, that would that probably would have sunk the film if you had to say Candyman thirteen times into a mirror. That's just ridiculous, you know. I, I mean, I get it because a lot of that part of it um, came from the Bloody Mary legend that we've all heard, where you say Bloody Mary in the mirror and you turn the lights on and off. Basically, just scare yourself silly. It's that's its own little urban legend unto itself. Uh, one thing that Bernard Rose was going to fight for was he's like, we got to shoot this movie on location. Got to shoot it in Chicago. We got to shoot it in the Cabrini Green's projects. Now, excuse me, Cabrini Green is one of the most dangerous places in the United States. Even, you know, it's changed now. Things have, you know, obviously. But in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, if you went in there and you didn't know people or didn't know what was going on, you were pretty much going to get robbed or murdered. Uh, I can't even tell you, like, for me to to describe to you how dangerous the Cabrini Green projects are, I can't do it any justice. You need to go and and look it up. It was ultimately all torn down by 1999. It doesn't stand anymore, but it literally, and this is someone who who grew up in New York, and we have like the Queensbridge projects. We have our own infamous projects here. But Cabrini Green, whoo, it was like a little empire, you know? And it came to a point where the police didn't even go there anymore. People would call the cops all the time for crimes, and they just wouldn't show up. So the studio says, fine, okay, you can go, you can shoot on location. Now, wouldn't you know, they start scouting. And as soon as they start scouting, they're being scouted. Now, approximately at that time, Cabrini Green was locked down by five different major gangs. And in order for them to shoot in in the projects, they basically had to pay off the gangs, uh, make arrangements with them. And it's crazy because... So many of the extras in this film that you see in Candyman, a lot of them are gang members. They're people that they were able to just pay off and put in the movie and give them a paycheck. So it was a weird thing that this movie kind of caused a a peace treaty between all the gangs because they were profiting from this film. Um, And they never had any incident. Nothing ever got stolen Nobody ever got beat up. Nothing ever happened because they were the the gangs were making money from this and they were under the protection of these gangs, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Ultimately, Virginia Madsen plays our lead character, Helen. And some people have looked at this movie. and I'm not going to give you a blow by blow like this is what happens in Candyman because that's not very exciting. That's boring. Go watch the movie. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, listen. This is a classic. In my opinion, this is a classic. And if I had to retread the entire story of Candyman, that's not very exciting. I'm giving you my thoughts, the liner notes. But if you haven't seen Candyman, you need to pause this, put it away, go watch the movie, and then come back. You will thank me later. It's a good movie. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review 
in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. So Virginia Madsen, she's playing this character, Helen, and she's looking into urban legends. And obviously, there's a lot going on here because she's a white woman and she's going into the hood to go look into this urban legend of Candyman. And to be perfectly honest with you, people don't realize, you know, at this time we were going through the the riots in Los Angeles, you know, the, the race riots that had happened in the early 90s because of the Rodney King beatings. Um, race was, and still is, a gigantic problem in the United States. You know, like, we've got a lot of good things, and this is a great country, probably still one of the greatest countries in the world, but we got some bad things, and racism is probably the worst of it all. Uh, this was not easy because they tried TriStar early on before they were able to saddle up on a money and all the deal and, and the way this whole film was made and produced. They were like, hey, you know, maybe you could just shoot it in a white neighborhood. And Bernard Rose was like, nah. He's like, he just was not going to give in. He's like, this is the story. This is, it, it's, it's intrinsically tied into the black community. So they said to him, well, if we can't get Virginia Madsen, maybe we could get a black actress and just make it a quote unquote black movie. And he goes, no, that's not the point of it. The point of it is that our white protagonist is going into the projects, into the hood to figure out what's going on with this Candyman urban legend. Now, this is where it gets crazy. Well, first, let's talk about Tony Todd. They cast Tony Todd. And originally, this is another thing the studio wanted. This is another crazy thing. They were like, hey, look, Eddie Murphy loves horror. And Eddie Murphy loves sci-fi, which he does. He's a guy, he loves genre movies. And ultimately, he went on to make A Vampire in Brooklyn with uh, Wes Craven. So that happened. But there was a time... Before they were able to secure Tony Todd, they were like, hey, let's offer this to Eddie Murphy. And they did. And Murphy, like his people looked at it, Murphy read it, and he goes, this is a little too much for me. And also it didn't fit because Candyman was designed as this big, imposing figure. Tony Todd is like damn near six, six feet, five inches. He's a big dude. And he's got one of the most beautiful, buttery soft voices on the planet. And... I can't think of, I just can't think of this role being played by anyone else. And that's why I think this new film is so exciting because we're going to be getting a couple of different versions of the Candyman, allegedly, you know, as if it's kind of like a mantle that's passed. I don't want to get into any spoiler talk, but that's what I heard. That's the hot goss on the streets. Bernard Rose was very aware early on, psychologically, to make this movie work, that the entire picture rested on the uh, relationship and the energy between Virginia Madsen and Tony Todd. So they did a lot of things that were kind of a little out there to make this work. One of the things that they did was they took fencing lessons. They took dance lessons. They even took a cooking class together in order to create a, a, a shorthand to the way that they were communicating and the way they would interact with each other. So from what I gather, this was kind of one of the best parts of making Candyman was that these two got to do all these fun things in order for them to build a real relationship and build real charisma and real heat. Even though the nature of their relationship is kind of weird because obviously Candyman is like some kind of spectral boogeyman, there is sexual tension all over this movie, okay? And any way you slice it, even though I know that he's like this supernatural specter and he's the bad guy, there is palpable sexual tension in this film. And that was great. And that totally works. It didn't work for TriStar, though. TriStar saw that shit. And now you have to understand it's 1992. We're only 25 years removed from interracial marriage in the United States. It's not like a, it's, it's still a new thing. So TriStar comes in and they're like, okay, like we kind of see there's some tension and, and they do kiss at some point, right? They're like, but we don't want any of that in the marketing materials. Don't put that in the trailer. Don't put it on the poster. Anything that seems romantic between this white woman and this black man, please 
do not market that. And if you can, tone it down. So, of course, you tell Bernard Rose that. He's a pompish English fuck, and he's going to say, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you tell any artist that. You say, hey, don't do that. They're going to do it, you know? Tell Michael Jackson not to grab his crotch, you know? Tell Prince not to slap women's asses on stage. He's going to do it more because if you tell someone don't do it, they're going to want to do it more than anything. So once Bernard Rose became aware that this sexual tension was upsetting TriStar, he injected as much of it as he could into the film because he's like, okay, well, obviously I'm making someone uncomfortable. And he's like, this is what horror should do. And that's the great thing about the genre is that you can kind of push buttons. So many things like Night of the Living Dead, um, especially George Romero's work. We always talk about like Dawn of the Dead. Um, Both of those films had black protagonists, which was something that was unseen, especially at the time of Night of the Living Dead. We had never seen heroes like that represented on the silver screen, and that was kind of a big deal. Now to see some kind of supernatural boogeyman who was kind of sexy and, and you know, kind of suave, it was like, hey, this is, this is different. Even that jacket, the jacket that Candyman wears in the film was a very typical jacket of the 1700s where that's the kind of like, because it's goofy. And there were some people like Clive Barker hated the jacket. He saw the jacket and he's like, what is that? What is he wearing? And if you go back into history and you look, that was the kind of very elegant and flamboyant jacket that a gentleman might wear out to the opera. So it was very ingrained early on that this Candyman character was going to have a sense of regal, sense of royalty, um, the way that he spoke. Because we meet early on, and one of my favorite characters is the, the gang member who, is, who actually who was with a bunch of real gang members who's calling himself Candyman. And there's the whole part where she gets knocked out by this dude. <laughs> and it's probably my favorite line um, in the movie. And he's like, I heard you're looking for Candyman, bitch. That's my favorite line in the whole movie. There's no better line. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of like that guy was, he was using the guise and the, the scariness of the urban legend uh, as kind of a street enforcer, as a way to add more marquee value to his name on the street. And it's, it's just, it's the best line in the movie. Candyman, because obviously he comes from a different time period, He's not going to talk like that. He's not going to have that street vernacular. So this is definitely not one of those things where we're just going to have, okay, we're going to make a cliche black horror villain or icon, and they're going to just say stupid shit that some white guy wrote, you know? And I think, like, that's a big part of why he's endured, because he's not made... Candyman is not cut from the cloth of just being some kind of street parody. I think if he was, if it was gimmicky and he was, you know, like jive talking and shit, like some 70s pimp, it would never have worked and it wouldn't have the lasting appeal that it's had. Again, Tony Todd is Candyman. Like nobody else could have played this role. The secret weapon to Candyman, though, is Philip Glass. Now, Philip Glass, if you look up He's more of an art guy. He does a lot of big artsy pictures. Um, He still does shows in New York. They scored this movie. And I got to tell you, Candyman has probably one of the best musical scores of any horror movie. I will put Candyman's score up against any, anything. Psycho, doesn't matter. Go down the line. Find anything you want. And Candyman can hang because it's original. It's got its own flavor. And you brought a guy who came from art house cinema over to a horror film.
Philip Glass has said over the years, he's like, I wasn't really even that aware of tangentially how horrific this film was going to be. They did something very interesting. Once early on, before they even started shooting, Bernard Rose like laid it out for Philip Glass. He's like, okay, so this is what happens. He's like, I want you to start working on some cues. So they start shooting the movie and then he has the tapes of Philip Glass and he starts playing them for the actors and the crew on set. So they reverse engineered a score. They took what worked and then he would give him the sides uh, of the dailies of the script and be like, hey, look, this is what we shot today. This is what we did. And usually the way that a movie is scored is they shoot the whole movie and they throw it at you. And the score generally has to be done very quickly because it's like, wow, well, we got to get this movie in theaters, you know, make the music. We don't care. Make it now. But this was something that before they shot one inch of footage, the score was already being developed and worked on. Um, so it's one of those special movies where the music was developing as the film itself was. So it's very intrinsically a part of it. Every scene, every movement, every note is there purposefully. And it's beautiful. Honestly, um, if you can pick this up, if you're a vinyl collector, this is one of them that I'd say like sight unseen, you're a horror person, just buy it. Don't even, because you're going to be, you'll thank me later that you have this soundtrack. It's weird. It's scary. It's creepy. Um, Philip Glass has never done another horror movie. He never did like a science fiction movie. So it was even one of those things where it was like, Philip Glass was kind of like, you know, what are we doing here? Like what I didn't, I didn't realize that this was such a horrific film because again, he was working with them as they did it. So it's not like they presented him a final product and he was like, Oh, I'm not going to score. This is crazy. This guy with his bees. Oh, this is terrible. No, he was there day by day, week by week with the cast, with the crew working on this score. So eventually once he saw the final product and he's doing the score, he was like, Mm, I don't know if I want my name attached to this film. I don't know if I really want to do this. And then his agent said, hey, look, this is going to be a good movie. You made a great score. So reluctantly, Glass says, okay, he goes along with it. And then he sees the movie in theaters at the premiere, and he's like, oh, my God, this is absolutely horrific. This movie is terrifying. Like, what, what did I make here? I'm not really kind of sure of how this was all going to come together. So his agent basically told him, like, this is the most money you've ever made off scoring a movie. So just let sleeping dogs lie and we'll, we'll all move on with it. And to this day, Philip Glass is very happy because it, he's even stated, like, in the past few years that it's the most money he's made off of anything he scored because he does do art movies. He, do, he does movies that are statements, movies that have something to say. Not that Candyman doesn't, but Candyman is a commercially driven film. It's a movie that was made to make money. There was a lot of weird stuff that happened, but I have to get into the weirdest because this, this is the most diabolical of everything that went on um, during Candyman. So Bernard Rose explains to Virginia Madsen that Helen is going to go through some very difficult times, and it's going to be almost dreamlike in quality. So he decided that the smartest thing to do would be to go and get her hypnotized. And the hypnotist was basically going to be able to knock her out at any given time while when they were shooting. So when they're shooting this stuff with Virginia Madsen, they've got this, this hypnotist on set at all times. And Whenever they wanted her, because there's these points in the movie where, like, she, like, you know, she gets hit on the head by the gang member who's pretending to be Candyman. Or, you know, she kind of, like, wakes up in Candyman's lair. So Bernard Rose's ingenious idea was, let's have her really get knocked out and come back up out of unconsciousness. So this kind of worked at first. But essentially what started happening was they were knocking her out and she was kind of losing memory and she was starting to have panic attacks and start freaking out because they were using the hypnotism too much 
And it was getting to the point where she was almost blacking out and not remembering what they had shot or the events of the day or remembering her lines. So a lot of times when you see Virginia Madsen waking up in this film, it's real. She doesn't know what's going on. And like, I guess Bernard Rose is a a bit of a madman for doing that. But ultimately, (laughs) I hate to say it, it kind of worked. It's like there's this part of her um, her performance where it really feels like she's suffering. And none more is the scene where she supposedly kills the other woman and she's in the, the police department and they're making her take her clothes off and she starts crying because it's, you know, it's very emotional. But at that moment, that was all real. Um, because she was covered in blood and the way that they had to do everything and the hypnotism and all that other stuff, she was completely, she didn't know what was going on. She was like bewildered. So all these different things convening all at once, she literally had a nervous breakdown on the set of Candyman. And if you watch that scene where the, where she's with the police officer, who she got one of her friends to play the police officer because it was like the only way she was going to get through the scene, But when she's taking her clothes off and everything, she's covered in blood. She really is having a nervous breakdown. After they shot that, they had to shut down for like almost a week, which, you know, is time is money on a movie set. But they couldn't shoot anything with her for about another week because she literally, she paid the price for being hypnotized every day, Um, being in all kinds of different prosthetic makeup. Oh, I didn't get to this. Now, this, this is... If you thought the hypnotism was crazy that went on in this movie, Virginia Madsen was allergic to bees. Yes, in a movie that we're going to use thousands upon thousands of real live honeybees. Okay, brace yourself in for this. And plus, if this is a trigger warning, if you don't like bees. So what they had to do was they had to get bees that didn't have stingers. And the only way that you can do that is by getting baby bees. They have to be like infants so that like they're not matured enough that their stingers will work. It's something that they have to go through like puberty in order for that to happen. So they would use these infant bees on her that didn't have stingers or reproductive organs yet. And it was crazy. Like they had to take out like this crazy insurance policy and they had to keep somebody on set that was uh, not just like an EpiPen, but they had to have somebody on set, like like a nurse practitioner that would be able to revive her because she was so deathly allergic to bees. And they had to take out a special uh, policy on the film itself just to get it made and insured because that's a big part of it. People don't realize when you're doing a movie and it's for a studio, uh, legality is always a problem. You know, we think a lot of films like horror movies are down and dirty, like, ooh, they really did it. Yeah, when it's low budget, you know, there's things you can do when you're Wes Craven and it's The Hills Have Eyes and you're shooting it and it's a non-union film and you can get away with it. But this was kind of a studio film and you need to have insurance and you need to have liability and you don't want to kill your lead actress. So they had to be like become hyper aware of what they were doing and how much they would use the bees. Now, Tony Todd was fine with the bees. He was like, okay. He's like, yeah, he had a little fear of it. And they said, okay, look, we're going to use this prop torso, which is kind of the rotting carcass that's underneath Candyman. We're going to have the bees primarily on that thing, and you're just going to put your head through, and that's how we're going to pull that gimmick off, that little illusion. How do you feel about putting bees in your mouth? And... He's like, well, I I really don't feel like I should put some bees in my mouth. So basically, one of the producers then said, for every sting that you get, because now Tony Todd, they the, the young bees were fine for Virginia Madsen, but they had to use adult bees that would really move around and do what they were supposed to do. So they said, look, every time you get stung in your mouth, we'll give you $1,000. Now, supposedly he made like $50,000 off of this. But Tony Todd, thank God the man's still alive, but he wasn't allergic to bees. 
And he got stung probably over a couple of hundred times during the course of Candyman. So if you ever think that you have put a lot of work into whatever it is that you're doing as an artist, nobody suffered more for their art than Tony Todd to make fucking Candyman. Um, like I said, Virginia Madsen was deathly allergic to these things, and Tony Todd was, was more than willing to basically get stung probably over 50, 60 times um, just so that they could complete this film. Ultimately, it kind of works out. Um, <laughs> so we, we've, we've got bees, we've got people getting hypnotized, and we've got a studio that gets to see the first cut of Candyman. And guess what? They are not happy. And it comes down to the point that they feel that this movie is too intense, it's too dark, and Bernard Rose is fighting. He is absolutely fighting for his life. He's fighting for the future of this movie because the studio is so flipped out at their first, uh, you know, like they have a screening that's just for the executives. And they were so like, like they didn't know what they were going to do. They're like, should we just sell this to HBO? Do we just put it on home? Like they were going to shelve this movie. They really did not know what to do with it. So luckily, cooler heads prevail and they show the movie to an audience and people loved it. Um, I think in the history of TriStar, there were very few movies that got like over a 90 rating score, which was like meaning they absolutely adored it. I think Twins was the only other movie that they had, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito film that got like such high marks and reviews. And once they were able to get this movie in front of audiences, they were like, oh shit, this really does work. And the time was right. 1992 was the right time to bring out a supernatural black boogeyman. The Candyman character, obviously, uh, is, is a character who is tied to slavery. And he falls in love. He's, he's a, a dignitary uh, of, you know, he's kind of a man who comes from wealth and uh, from, from a kind of royalty to a degree, a very wealthy family. And uh, he gets involved with a white woman and they murder him for it. And like I had said, 25 years ago, you weren't even allowed to have an interracial marriage in the United States. This was a tough pill to swallow, regardless, um, especially for the studio, for everybody involved. And the initial poster had Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen on it. They never produced it. So don't go out there going crazy because, you know, somebody's going to listen to this and you're like, oh, how do I get that poster? The initial poster was pretty much um, Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen kissing with the bees in between them. And you can go online. You can go on like, you know, Google. You can look it up right now. It's a pretty cool poster. Like I would hang it in my house. But TriStar was not going to go for that. And that was kind of what Bernard Rose had hoped to sell this film on was this weird interracial love dynamic between these two characters. Ultimately, TriStar wasn't having it. So they made them scrap all the initial early promotional materials. Um, you know, at this time you had films like The Crow, which is kind of a gothic love story as well in some ways. Um, it was just the timing. It was the early 90s. It was the vibe was to have kind of these horror themes with romance thrown into them. But there was no way. There was just absolutely no way that they were going to show this interracial relationship through the promotional marketing for Candyman. So ultimately they had to strike a lot of it. And it is what it is, but I think at the end of the day, Bernard Rose was just happy to get this film made. Uh, apparently, you know, because of everything that they had gone through, through the course of trying to get it made. Ultimately, Candyman comes out, and uh, it does, I think, around $35, $36 million in its initial release. And it becomes a big hit becomes uh, one of the biggest hits of the year for TriStar. So fuck you. You didn't believe in the movie and it ended up paying all the bills for everybody. People don't realize it, but horror generally ends up paying the bills. These kind of movies are always looked down upon. Like the studio usually will have their prestige pictures. They're like, oh, this is the film that's going to get us the Oscar. But 
the films that pay the bills are the horror movies. They're the science fiction movies. They're the martial arts movies. They're the movies that the critics thumb their nose down. Candyman was very well received, uh, critically. I want to say even as far as favorability, you know, Roger Ebert, uh, Siskel and Ebert, they gave it two thumbs up. It was one of these movies that played very well critically and it played to audiences because like I said, it was very powerful at that time to have an African-American, a black man who was the horror villain and who was the central character that this whole film had been built around. They wanted a sequel because, you know, that's how it's done. We always want a sequel. And in the sequel, initially, uh, they had talked about, you know, Virginia Madsen's character taking over because they're like, hey, we don't even have to do Candyman. We can just do Helen. And this movie, we could just call Helen because Jesus Christ, they were so afraid of having a black character that was the lead of this film that they were willing to greenlight a sequel that was based upon the urban legend of this white woman. It's like, it's absolutely crazy. Eventually, there was Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. Um, it's not very good. I think the, the less said, the better. I'm not here. I'm not one of these people who I don't like to... Look, there's a time and place to bag on movies. And do I think that the sequels kind of tarnished the legacy? They had had some other Candyman films that were in the works that were going to happen. They tried, they wanted to do a, a Candyman at Christmas. I, I don't even know what that would have been. I'm glad they didn't do it. But through the years, they tried to bring it back. Um, at one point, I want to say it was like 1998, they tried doing a mini series for HBO. And uh, they actually had come up with a couple of scripts and they came up with some conceptual images, but nothing ever came to fruition about it really just never took off. I think Candyman has a very important legacy. Um, Halloween, the 1978 John Carpenter Halloween, is very important because a lot of people call it the first modern horror film. And when I say modern, I mean that it doesn't take place with Christopher Lee in an old castle in England. It's very much a time and place, and the time and place is the white, idyllic suburbs of Chicago in Haddonfield, Illinois. Um, that's a time and a place that we had never seen used as the backdrop, and that's why I think that Candyman is so important, because for a new generation, our backdrop is the Cabrini Green projects, and for a lot of people, we had never seen the projects used in a movie, let alone a horror movie. And it made it seem more real, more grounded in a reality that we're all familiar with. Because let's be perfectly honest with you, the reality of the world that exists in the film Candyman is far more realistic and tangible to me than even some of the stuff that goes on in Halloween. Because Halloween was made in 1978. And that whole suburban dream seems like a dream at this point. It seems so far away from where we are. I think Candyman's an important film, not just for horror, but at the time. It was a part of a bunch of films. Some people have dragged this film. They've said, well, ultimately, it's a white guy directing it that wrote it that was based on a short story by another British white guy. And they really had only started to skim the surface of the interracial um, love story and also about the plight of black characters and what was going on in the inner city at the time. Now, some people say, like, who are they qualified to tell this story? Well, look, I don't think they are qualified to tell it, but they were able to do it. And I think any time that you can take a group of people who haven't been given the opportunity to create, to tell stories, anytime that you can empower people and bring them to the dance to help them tell their stories, showcase them, feature them, I think it's always a win-win. I think it's a beautiful thing. Is there a perfect world where, you know, they could have gone further 
with a lot of the, because people talk a lot about like, okay, they're kind of dancing around the interracial thing, like it's the origin of the character, but we're not really conceptualizing it or fully fleshing it out. We're kind of alluding to it. And maybe it's better that way. Maybe it's better that a white British guy only alluded to it. Maybe he wasn't the one to tell that story. And that's why I'm so excited about the Nia DaCosta film. Because you have an African-American woman who is willing to tell this story, take it in new directions, and do some new and interesting things that we haven't seen done with the mythos before. And I think, to me, that's probably the best gift that we get from Candyman, is that the story gets to continue through a new narrator, through a new visionary who's going to tell a new story. And to me, that's the most exciting thing. We had to wait a long time for this new Candyman film, but maybe it was for the best. Because even though Candyman had been created um, and pretty much greenlit by the studio to have this new horror icon, he wasn't like that. I mean, do you really want that world where, like, we've got Candyman 6, you know, the final Candyman, and he just turns into Freddy Krueger and he really is saying, like, what do you know about Candyman, bitch? Just, like, smacking people, and he's making quips, and he just becomes a big old pussy like Freddy. Because I'll be honest with you, I love Freddy Krueger, but goddamn, by the time we got to that Freddy's Dead movie, it was kind of heartbreaking, because they had they pretty much pimped out Freddy Krueger and made him look like a cheap whore. And that's ultimately what would have happened to Candyman. I mean, the sequels made some money, and they were direct-to-video, pretty much. You know, like... The second movie, The Farewell to the Flesh, had like a small opening, but it did under $10 million. Uh, I think it was like $7 million when it came down to the gross on it. They didn't put the time, they didn't put the love into it, and they weren't willing to go full force with it in the way that it, it should be. And I think for a lot of ways, I think for a lot of reasons, that's kind of like selling the character short. So maybe it's better that we waited. And... As I'm recording this in the year of our Lord 2021, we were supposed to get Candyman last year. Candyman, the new film by Nia DaCosta, was completed in 2019. Uh, it was supposed to come out in 2020. And here we are in August. I'm going to knock on wood, doing the, uh, the sign of the cross. I'm hoping that we get to see Candyman. I'm hoping it doesn't get delayed. If I have to watch it on pay-per-view, so be it. <laughs> you know, if it's on Peacock or HBO Max or whatever, I get it. But I'm really looking forward to going to the theaters and seeing this film because there's a lot of interesting things at play. Um, you have a lot of great creators involved in this new film. And even the man himself, Tony Todd, will be returning. I'm not quite sure if he... I mean, come on. He's got to play. But you never know. Maybe he's just making a cameo. We, everyone's kind of in the dark, and I think that's what's so exciting about this new movie. Um, that's pretty much the offering, you know? I could go on all day talking about how great um, the, the offering is. <laughs> I could pretty much go on all, all day about the Candyman. I had the Candyman figure. This, uh, back in the day, Todd McFarlane had the, you know, the horror series that he did, and... It was a pain in the ass to find Candyman. And once I finally found that action figure, I was so fucking happy. I was like, yeah, because look, you got Freddy model kits, you got Freddy bed sheets, but you didn't get Candyman stuff. It was more rare. And I'm not saying they should exploit this, but maybe they could. Maybe maybe it's time for Candyman bed sheets. And, and you know, I, and the other thing, too, is like people are hip enough now. Can we do a honey crossover? I mean, could you have a thing of like Tony Todd's head and it's a honey dispenser? Is that going too far? I don't know. You, you tell me. Get at me on social media. I'm at Jerry Haro on pretty much every goddamn form. You, hey, look, have you seen the YouTube? We've got a YouTube. It's crazy. The offering with Jerry Haro YouTube. Oh, there's videos there. There's long form stuff. You can argue with me about dumb shit on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You come look at photos of my butt. Uh, no, there's no photos of my butt. Um... Because I wouldn't have to do this podcast if I had a nice butt, you know? That would be a whole different thing, you know? I, I, you know, exactly. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go back, watch The Candyman. It's a fantastic film. I highly recommend it. Definitely one of my top 10 uh, horror films that was made in the 1990s. 
This has been The Offering. I'm Jerry Hara. We're mostly horror, always genre, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Pugh. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.